Welcome to the Families Under Pressure podcast series, brought to you by the Life Course Centre. Families Under Pressure explores the opportunities and the challenges, social, economic and structural, for families to provide the best possible foundations for children to realise their life's full potential. Hello and welcome to the Families Under Pressure podcast presented by the Life Course Centre. I'm Professor Matt Sanders and I'm delighted to welcome our guest today, Professor Donna Cross of the Telethon Kids Institute and the University of Western Australia. Donna is a nationally and internationally renowned child development and health promotion expert. She is Program Head Development and Education at the Telethon Kids Institute and a Chief Investigator in the Life Course Centre. Donna is absolutely committed to bringing researchers, educators, service providers, policy makers and communities together to improve children's and young people's social and emotional development and well-being. It's a great pleasure to have you join us here today, Donna, and welcome. Thanks very much, Matt. I really look forward to talking with you. I wonder if we could start with you providing our listeners with a bit more detail on your background and the work that you've led at the Telethon Kids Institute in Perth. Our team at Telethon Kids uh, has been doing work in schools for about the last 30 years and our research has focused heavily on children's social and emotional well-being and the kinds of actions that we can take over the life course to optimise children's wellbeing. So our, our emphasis is very much on protection of children's wellbeing, promotion of their wellbeing, as well as prevention of factors that might influence their wellbeing. Okay, so if we're going to today sort of zero in a little around the role of schools in supporting families and children, including some of the most vulnerable in the community, what are some of the key messages that have come out of your research and programs relating to schools? I think probably the most important message that our research has identified is that disadvantage is not a student characteristic it's an outcome of a life experience. And obviously, children spend a substantial amount of their time in schools. So schools can have a really positive influence on supporting all children, obviously, but particularly children who experience disadvantage and really quite a privileged position in the actions that they can take. So when you think about children who start school, of course, they've had very different experiences from birth to starting school and it means that they're entering school at different levels of capability in terms of their independence and language and cognitive skills and social emotional capabilities. You know some folk would even say look it's just simply too late to do anything once the child has started school and if you don't get into the early intervention piece whatever schools do is going to not make too much of a difference What are your thoughts on that kind of observation? It's really challenging, I think, for all of us in how we message what children's opportunities are. And as you were indicating, about 38% of children are developmentally disadvantaged when they start school. So we've got good quality AEDC data that let us know and help us to identify what those difficulties are. But I think what we need to be most careful of is that we don't encourage deficit thinking And deficit thinking obviously is incredibly harmful for students and that's the perception that some 
student's failure to succeed in school is a, is a result of deficiencies in their family and the student themselves and that they lack motivation. But of course, this really oversimplifies the difficulties that these children are experiencing and the sorts of actions that we can take as a school. So as you suggest, Matt, early is better, but it's never too late. And there's always actions that can be taken. And schools have a really important role to play in that process. But of course, their history has influenced where they've got to. And some children, because of the kinds of families that they've come from, have experienced things like abuse and neglect and brain injuries and and a whole range of things that would compromise their learning capabilities. The thing that you're highlighting, however, is that when children are starting school, whatever those backgrounds have been, the school system itself has to be able to respond to individual differences and to do whatever they're able to do to cater for the needs of those children, including good connection with with family, I would have thought. Indeed. And of course, schools have a really powerful role, but they can't compensate for disadvantage. But they can can make a really big difference. And uh, when we think about some of the research, for example, that Professor Steve Zubrick has done, where he looked at subgroups of children and what their performance was like when they entered school and what happened to them over time. And he showed, particularly in one group of children from cold backgrounds, that while those children started school with great difficulties and uh, certainly were developmentally disadvantaged, over time, because of the commitment of their parents in particular, that their parents really valued education and really ensured that their children engaged, that those children caught up quite significantly over the life course in school that demonstrates the importance of parents and the partnership that they have with schools. Obviously, schools playing a key role, but that partnership being so important. And with parents valuing children's educational journey, sometimes it's not always clear to them what their own role should or could be in supporting the efforts of the school to promote children's learning. Any moments of sort of reflection on Just the nature of that challenge between homes and schools working together. As you're suggesting, Matt, obviously that's the ideal. And sometimes it's really hard because perhaps the students whose parents are more engaged in the school, it's easier for the school to maintain contact with those families. So it really has to be a very deliberate effort, purposeful effort to engage with families and obviously with positive contacts. Many parents tell us that whenever they hear that the school has called, their immediate reaction is something's gone wrong or my child is behaving badly. So it's really changing that level of engagement with families, really making an effort to establish a communication with all parents, not just the ones who are easy to communicate with. And these days with technology, we have so many options in terms of the ways that we can send home messages to video things that go on in the classroom. So you really can bring the classroom and the home together much more easily than perhaps we had in the past. Which will mean that parents are much better informed about what's going on with their children's learning journey, if you like, uh, once they're in the school system. But in a world where parents have kind of beliefs, they have expectations, they make assumptions about what's happening with schools. And sometimes you can get parents who are creating real challenges for teachers because they're pushy, demanding, sometimes even escalative, even physically assaultive. And we think about, well, how stressful is that? for teachers to be having to deal with 
with the aspiration of engaging and relating well to the child's parent, it's pretty tough if someone's giving you a really tough time as a teacher. Is this a teacher issue? Is it a parent issue? Is it both? Or is it a systems issue? I, I'm not sure. Any any comments on that issue? Uh, I, I think, as you're suggesting, Matt, it really is a combination of all of those, isn't it? That at a system level, we need to have policies that protect staff and protect their well-being, teaching staff, and also policies that enable effective engagement. At a school level, we need leadership that sets a school culture that is engaging and makes parents feel welcome within the school environment, that the contacts with schools are not confrontational, that they are positive experiences and that those relationships that are developed over time and for teachers to see that the most important aspect of their teaching is the relationship that they build with the students in their care and obviously with their families if they can possibly do that because children learn better when they love their teacher, when they get along with their teacher. It's not necessarily the teacher who is the best engaged. But our research, we just completed a report for Queensland Independent Schools Association. In that report, we were looking at how teachers' well-being has been affected, particularly post-COVID, the impact of COVID on the relationship between schools and home. But teachers, as you suggest, are frontline. And yes, they are experiencing more aggression and conflict from families. So we really need to set policy level, school level actions that are protecting staff and protecting their well-being in the long term. Yeah. And there's evidence to show that the more friction and conflict teachers have with parents, it's one of the contributory factors to teachers wanting to leave teaching. And in an environment where there's teacher shortage and that I often wonder whether we should be taking a stronger line around the way in which parents engage with schools with respect to thinking about could we or should we be preparing parents better in terms of how they could advocate for their children, the way in which they could approach the school if they're concerned about something that's going on with their child, ranging from their learning to bullying? What are your thoughts about preparing parents for skillfully communicating with the school and the reciprocal teachers learning how to deal with parents' anxieties and concerns and sometimes complaints. It's an interesting capacity building issue, isn't it, Matt? We need to be reflecting on how we have built the capacity of teachers to build relationships with parents and similarly for parents to understand what their role is within schools. And particularly if parents' only experiences are negative experiences with schools themselves, they will be feeling anxious as they come into a school environment, so maybe more prone to aggression. And as you say, you know, providing skills to support parents in how they approach schools and how they approach teachers and, and for teachers to feel skilled in that regard, how the school supports teachers to engage with parents is really important because often a teacher feels quite isolated. They have their classroom, their group of students, those students have their group of parents and the parents are coming straight to the teacher and so the teacher isn't always as well protected. In our bullying prevention research, we spend a lot of time talking to families about the most effective actions that they can take that will build the resilience of their children. That if they just take over and come into the school and tell the school how it, you know, what they think the school should be doing, is not actually helping their children. So when we focus on the relationship between teachers and parents, we need to remember that this is all about learning for their children and what we're modelling, what we're demonstrating 
So preparing parents, giving them tips, as we have done in our research, we found that we were able to reduce the conflict. Parents were coming in feeling like they were in a position to negotiate and to talk through their children's needs, giving them some key tips. We've got a, um, a model called the late model that just helps parents think through four actions that they need to take before they come back and interact with students. And similarly, for teachers, when a parent approaches, here are some uh, ways that you can diffuse conflict, that you can engage with parents, just giving them those kinds of communication tips, which isn't always part of teacher training. Well, it's mostly not a part of teacher training for most teachers, is it? I mean, it's a pretty neglected area, the way in which you collaborate and communicate with parents of students in your class or your school. I mean, it's interesting you're talking about the crucial role of parents being prepared to, in a sense, relate more effectively to schools. I mean, I found clinically over the years that when parents are really upset about something and you're talking to them about either being called up to the school or needing to approach the school and you ask this question, how are you going to approach this meeting or what are you going to say? Most parents have no idea of what it is they're going to say. And sometimes because they're anxious, they get into the blamey accusatory thing without ever checking out what the school has actually done already. What observations would you make about how well parents are prepared to handle these tricky conversations with schools? Yes, I think it's probably an issue for all situations in our life, isn't it, Matt, that it's not just between parents and schools, it's in workplaces and so on. So skills like conflict resolution, being able to deal with situations effectively, to communicate clearly are skills that are incredibly beneficial. And, of course, again, going back to the role modelling that we're doing for our children, how important that is. And so we've built practices. We had a research project looking at levels of anxiety in children and often in parents in giving parents tips on ways that they can talk to their children about how to deal with their anxiety. And often at the same time, they're also learning how to deal with that themselves and had terrific transfer in the relationship between the parent and the child. And as you're suggesting there, we also have really interesting modes of communication these days that we haven't had historically. Perhaps in the past, a face-to-face meeting was the only meeting that we could have. But now, you know, helping parents to think about how to craft an email, open-ended, looking for solutions, trying to understand the situation versus coming straight in into conflict can be a helpful way to kind of warm up to a situation where they will be meeting each other face-to-face. We find that Zoom meetings in particular in schools are working very well. Parents feel more comfortable because they're in their own home. So there's less of a power play where you're sitting perhaps in a principal's office or somewhere where you can have your family around you to talk about the issues. And similarly, the school can have other staff that are present. So I think there are lots of options for parents to consider in the ways that they approach schools and also recognising schools are so under pressure. We talk about families being under pressure, but think about our poor frontline school staff and how would we want to be approached if we were in that situation given the level of stress we're experiencing. And of course, applying your not thinking of a deficit model when you're talking about children's development also applies to the development of capabilities of teachers and their capacity to deal with stress so that it seems to me that anything that is inadvertently conveys judgment or blame or is attacking schools for their what the community perceives them not doing will lead or could lead to enormous resistance by teachers. I mean, how do you think we need to tackle that kind of approach, given that it should be about empowering people to proactively take control of their own learning? 
I agree, Matt. And I think that the biggest challenge we have is that schools have become kind of the panacea of all ills, that we've lost many other social institutions that have been in the community, even more you know, having families around to support each other. So schools are being asked to deal with all sorts of issues. I was with a school staff member the other day who had a parent who had stopped by the classroom when they dropped off their child and wanted to talk about the divorce that they were going through. And so in addition to looking after their children, they were also counselling one thing that I think would be really important is that we take a step back and look at how we can promote the value of schools and the importance of schools within our community. And perhaps even looking at Finland as an example, where schools and school staff are revered. It is a profession that people go into and are incredibly proud of. And the impact that schools can have. There was a fantastic study that was done in Canada. Mara Brennan uh, led this work and it was a longitudinal cohort study that looked at the impact of schools on children's development, similarly to the impact of homes on children's development. And very at a very high level, Mara will kill me for how I'm describing this, but generally what she found was that schools could do as much good or as much harm as a family could. So if a child came from an okay family but went into a, a school that was really dysfunctional, that school could cause as much harm to that child as a dysfunctional family. So schools are powerful and they're powerful in their positive influence. I, I gave a, a negative example, but similarly, children come from very difficult homes and come into a well-functioning school that can make such a difference to children over time. So as a setting to make a difference, if we were able to respect schools, give them the resource they need as a community, support them, you know, schools represent our communities, we should be doing our best to support them. That will make such a difference in the long term. Some of the conversations I've had with leaders and schools and, and with individual teachers is that although there's recognition of the importance of parents and in influencing children's learning, there's sometimes a belief that if we offer evidence-based parenting programs through schools, we're only going to get to the worried well or the ones who don't need it the most and the most vulnerable parents are not going to participate. Do you think there's any truth in that? And how can we avoid that? So parents who perhaps are more socially disadvantaged feel that they can participate and be involved and derive the benefits of a high quality evidence-based program. What do you think? I agree that it's always a long-term challenge for us, isn't it, that we are making sure that we're not just speaking to those who are already converted. I've seen some really interesting work done in schools where perhaps instead of running parenting sessions where an expert is brought in to present to parents only, that children are engaged and using children's performance as a vehicle to get messaging to families. And in these schools... The children became the peer educators and peer leaders and through assemblies where your child might be presenting at an assembly, a parent was much more likely to come along and watch their children and then hear other things that were going on around at that time than perhaps making the time to come out in the evening after they've made dinner. So using children as a conduit, I'll come and see my children more likely than I will come and see an expert speaker as a vehicle, looking at offering trainings in places where parents are versus bringing parents to a central location or maybe even a location where they haven't had good experiences personally in the past. So using an off-site environment, recreation centre, 
going where parents are if children are playing sport no opportunities to talk to families when they are engaged while their children are having swimming lessons you know it's a grand opportunity to have brief interventions that are providing you know key messaging that's maybe more targeted and bespoke for the the age group of the children who are there so trying to be innovative creative think about what parents need and how we can engage them so that we don't just round up the usual suspects. But that said, Matt, they are such important influences, aren't they, that even though there might be that that core group of parents who keep turning up, they're wonderful social influences, they're car park conversations. So we, we also need to look at how that messaging is diffused through parents, not just seeing that we have to be directly face to face. Just one thing I was thinking about that could be contentious or not, depending on how you view it. And that is that you make participation in a transition to school parenting program universally accessible that parents can opt out of. So not compulsory, but widely expected that parents would participate in. And I think if we did that, we'd probably get much higher participation rates because it would be just normalised, non-exceptional, something that everyone does to prepare themselves to support their children's education and for schools and families to get on the same page. What do you reckon about something like that? I love the idea, Matt. It's a bit like the IT equipment requirement in schools. You know, your children can't have a laptop until you come to the school and sit with your child to see how that laptop works and and engage. You know, it it's small doses, but it still makes that contact. And even if that if that's just the first positive contact that the school has with parents, it's not so scary. These teachers are actually really nice. They really seem to care about my kids. You know, something that is a wonderfully positive experience, ideally with some childcare so I don't have to worry about my other children, ideally with some food because, you know, I might be hungry and it's a warm and welcoming environment. Even some toys, I know we offer toothbrushes just for free. You know, it was small incentives that help parents come along. This, of course, is in the world of in-person contact with COVID. We've had to pivot towards, you know, not only telehealth, but the delivery of many programs targeting children and families through uh, Zoom and the online world. And I'm wondering, there's a certain amount of huge benefit in having flexible delivery modalities to cater for how hard it is for working parents to get to the school, sometimes at times that schools are offering programs. Indeed. And I think that the webcam in the classroom, uh, being able to podcast uh, school assemblies, opportunities for parents to join online. We talked before about you know using Zoom as meetings or whatever communication media you're using to interact with families, that chance for busy households to still make the connection and ideally still see faces, which really, really helps, is critical. And COVID, as you've suggested, Matt, it has provided that, that really wonderful opportunity because parents have been able to really actively engage as part of their teaching. Obviously, it was very hard on parents, but their relationship with their understanding of their children's learning has no doubt increased. I suppose there's been an upside and a downside to the home learning processes that parents have had to be involved in. Any reflections on either the up and the downside? My children are older, so uh, I haven't seen or experienced the downside as many of my friends and colleagues have And I think just that responsibility and recognition of the amazing job that teachers do when uh, they realise they had to do this themselves on top of their own work, that has been both a positive and a negative. 
One in that many of the, in the research we've been doing as well, parents have really liked that they've had a deeper understanding of where their children's learning is at and been able to have more conversations with their children in their household. But also, as I mentioned, this really deep appreciation for what teachers are doing and how hard they're working. Often, you know, teaching in hybrid, you know, I've got some children in the classroom, I've got some online, and just the extraordinary work that goes on and, and really maybe understanding a bit more about the pedagogy and the content that's presented as well. I think one of the issues that the Life Course Centre and groups like the Parenting and Family Research Alliance, PAFRA, have been really emphasising is the crucial importance of having evidence-based programs that are accessible to the various contexts of children's lives, whether it's in the health system or education or in the welfare system. It's one thing to develop a program and show it works. It's quite another thing to scale it and to deploy it in a sustainable way in a school system that leads to quality improvement over time. What are your observations about the extent to which social scientists more broadly really are working in this space of the implementation science challenges that are involved in installing high-quality programs in schools and then sustaining it? Any thoughts on that? Yes. As researchers, probably the easy part is developing, co-designing the interventions, the sorts of recommendations that we're making to be used in schools and, and in communities. But as you're suggesting, the hardest part is enabling them to be implemented effectively so that they achieve the results that the evidence is suggesting that they should achieve. For schools who are so busy and are so diverse they are really struggling and certainly our implementation science research led by Tash Pierce on our team is suggesting that many schools are buying kind of the cookie cutter type programs, trying to squeeze it in to fit. It's kind of like buying you know one item of clothing in one size and just hoping it'll fit your body in the school environment and realising how difficult it is to sustain it, to motivate their staff, to deliver it and to ensure that it continues over time. So a keen focus on implementation science. So readiness issues. Now, how ready is our school for what we're identifying? What are the needs in our school? Do we deeply understand what the needs and the strengths are so that we can match the resources to that? Do we have capacity? Do our staff have sufficient skills to be able to deliver this? You know, where do we need to source those capacity tools from and how do we then spread that love across the schools so that it's delivered at a cultural level, not just specifically within classrooms? And, of course, monitoring that over time, that sort of whole school improvement process. When we develop an evidence-based program and we establish things like effect sizes and the proportion of kids in the sample who are responders and show improvement, the assumption is that if it's producing a strong intervention effect, then all that's required is for that to be reproduced in the school environment and uh, problem solved. Whereas it doesn't even mean that because it works in a trial, it's going to work in this school. And so, therefore, constant tracking and evaluation of outcomes leads to an environment where schools are constantly learning and assessing and changing and adapting to make sure those evidence-based practices are fit for purpose. Do you think that does take place or should take place more than it does? 
Schools really want it to take place. Schools try so hard. We have worked in hundreds and hundreds of schools over the last 30 years and watched their primary motivation is to do everything they can to support children. But they are so distracted. There are so many other pressures and delivery points that our research has shown that we really have to make it incredibly easy for schools to do this. We've developed a platform as part of the Life Course Centre, which is called Oasis, which is uh, using digital technology to help schools to work out what it is that their schools need and use data that they've got, they're sitting on often in their schools to understand what their needs are, common elements to help them select resources that are most effective and be able to cherry pick in effect, you know, to draw out those resources that they need most effectively to meet those needs and, of course, respond and implement them and scale them over time to get them over those places where they get bogged. And I'm sure in your work, Matt, you would have the same experience that schools start off incredibly enthusiastic and then just get so bogged down. So what we want to do is kind of build platforms to help schools get out of that bog being pushed, like little mini agendas that just keep them moving along small steps, you know, rather than milestones, inch stones to uh, kind of get them, get them going. How crucial is leadership in the school environment to make any of this happen? <laughs> Absolutely. A very leading question, Matt. But uh, of course, you know, a school leader is everything. What did Napoleon say? You know, at the top of the pyramid, the wind blows on all four sides. You know, it's such a tough role to be a school principal. Yet so much of the variance we see in the schools we're doing research in is explained by who the leader is and the leadership style and the distributed leadership style and the culture and investment in staff that the school leader provides. If you're fortunate enough to be in a school with a fabulous principal, that's amazing. But, you know, there are lots of things that could be done to support principals more. They're often incredibly isolated. So system level changes that are needed to make sure there's good mentorship and supervision of principals, that we don't lose them early on and that we have a good succession of principals who are coming through feeling, you know, prepared for this really complex role. I'm just thinking, you know, we're coming up to a federal election. There are many things that both the Life Course Centre as a whole and individual researchers such as yourself and myself probably have views on in terms of what are the kind of things that governments should be doing more of or less of to improve the developmental outcomes of children. If money were not an obstacle for you, what would you recommend to government that they should be doing that would produce the greatest benefit? I think using evidence to respond to that, our investment in the early years has to be a priority. We talk about you know, the developmental disadvantage that children can have by the time they get to school. And as we talked about before, it's never too late. There's always things that can be done. But if the investment happens earlier, so early learning, building the capacity, valuing early learning carers, training them effectively, investing and making sure that we have quality teachers and providers from the youngest possible age is where I would be spending my money. And of course, supporting paternity and maternity leave so that parents have access and opportunities to develop skills to support their children as well. How do we deal with the observation that has said, yes, the first thousand days of life are important, but every successive thousand days in a child's life is also important throughout their lives, from birth to death, I think that the recent research, relatively recent, last 10 years, that's been very focused on neural development has had a, a bit of an iatrogenic effect in the sense of, you know, positive intent but a negative outcome. 
that because we've understood how critical those early years of neural development are, the whole focus has moved to those first thousand days, which is really from conception, so it's really only to age two. But we know that there are really important developmental windows throughout a child's life into adulthood. We think about adolescence and what a critical period that is to be providing support, helping parents to, to parent their adolescents. So yes, every successive thousand days has important learnings for us to address and that we need to be developing good quality research. So we're giving parents those tips at the time they need the most, teachers at the times that children need it most so that we can get children through to the best optimal outcomes. That would suggest to me that we need continuous support of families and parents and their parenting role throughout their journey because you can have a terrific first thousand days of life to be followed by tragedy, death, all sorts of things that can compromise children's development. I think we've got to a point where we should probably wrap up. But Don, I'd just like to uh, thank you for your time today. It's been great to have this discussion with you and for you to be sharing your insights with our listeners on ways to provide the best possible start and foundations for our young children in their life course journey. And you've really highlighted the crucial importance of schools and of families working together. Thanks, Matt. I'm Professor Matt Sanders, and keep listening for more episodes in the Life Course Centre's Families Under Pressure podcast series coming soon. You've been listening to Families Under Pressure, a podcast series from the Life Course Centre. If you enjoyed this episode, please share with your family, friends and colleagues and subscribe to Families Under Pressure wherever you get your podcasts. We look forward to sharing more episodes and insights from our experts within and associated with the Life Course Centre. For more information on the research and activities of the centre, visit lifecoursecentre.org.au.